0: Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurers, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, everyone? So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dylan Tamina, the author of Headwaters, The Adventures, Obsession, and Evolution of a Fly Fisherman. It's a great read and really good podcast episode where we talk about pretty much that, right? We talk about his adventures his obsession and evolution of a fly fisherman into a conservationist. Big one there is obsession. We talk about his driving obsession with fishing in particular, fishing in general, and fly fishing in particular. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Throughout it, I think at one point he even asks me a question about like the big, what should we be focused on from a conservation standpoint? Right? Should we be focused on climate change? the big thing I threw in population increases being another big thing, but like, should we be focused on those big things or should we be focused on the small things? So bless his heart. Yes. <laughs> he asked me a question. Uh, I tried to answer, uh, you know, I'm no expert in any of this stuff. I'm just curious, but I tried to answer it, tried to talk through what I think about the threats that we're facing, um, from a conservation perspective. So, again, the book is Headwaters, The Adventures, Obsession, and Evolution of a Fly Fisherman. And, yeah, I hope you enjoy this podcast with Dylan Tamina. I'm sure you will. As always, please be a pal and follow me, I guess, wherever I post this or wherever you can find this. Uh, Like, subscribe, review, leave a comment, um, any of that stuff, and pick up the book. Um, Yeah, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I am sure you will. Let's dive into it. So thank you so much for hopping on, Dylan. I'm, I'm really pumped about this one. Um, I got your book right in front of me, Headwaters, The Adventures, Obsessions, and Evolution of a Fly Fisherman. The book is great. Uh, I love how it's interspersed by flashbacks from accidental brothel trips <laughs> or uh, stays in <laughs> Russia uh, to like near disaster fly fishing trips. But it's all centered around your love or your obsession, absolute obsession of fly fishing. Um, often at the expense of your own like personal life. Uh, talk about how this obsession started and how did it stay so strong and consistent throughout your
1: life? <laughs> wow, that, we're starting off with a really big question. I mean,
0: like I said, like I'm yeah, I I love it because I am so inconsistent with my passions, and this well, is a I, strong through line.
1: For me, I, I mean. I guess like fishing has been such a constant in my life and it's not just fly fishing. I mean, I like deer fishing. I, 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 just like fishing in general, um, spend most of my time fly fishing. But, um, I, I think it started with, with fish that as a really little kid, I was just obsessed with fish, like how they look and what they do and all that stuff. And fishing became a way, well, two things. One is it became a way to get closer to the fish you know, so like yeah. it was actually, um, a mechanism to where I could actually put the fish in my hand and like touch it and yeah. look at it up close. Um, and that fascination totally remains. Um, and then the other piece is that, that my father was a fisherman. And so it was, um, you know, it was a way to, you know, every little kid wants to be like their dad. Right. And mm-hmm. so that was part of it, I think. And then, um, the older I became just the more it, kind of was always just part of me. So um, as far back as I can remember, I, I mean, there's parts in the book about, you know, these flashback memories of fishing scenes throughout yeah. my life. And and people are like, well, what else is there? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, that's it. <laughs> you know, that is it. So um, all the memories that I have, I mean, most of them, and and even all the photos of me as a young kid, I'm always fishing or holding a fish or or standing by a river or doing wow. something so um yeah it's just sort of a unavoidable um you know it's like an addiction i guess
0: and it's been consistent there's never been a time in your life where you've fished as much or even too much like you've, you've always been longing to do it
1: yeah i yeah i rarely get fished out yeah okay. <laughs> um but certainly, you know, fatherhood and, and needing a steady job. My kids are teenagers now, and one of them just started college, so there's financial um, concerns that take precedence, you know, yeah. at different parts of my life and sometimes ignored and sometimes, you know, I'm working on the responsibility angle um, uh, uh, hard. Like I'm, I'm trying to be a, a recovering fly fishing addict and <laughs> – and I, I say that not to make light of anybody else's addiction, but to to actually have some simpatico with people who have addictions, because um, through large parts of my life it was it was relatively self destructive um, around kind of the level of obsession.
0: Wow! And yeah, I mean, you there. Are, there's an awesome passage in the book. I mean, I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. The book is by itself hilarious um, in a lot of parts. But like where you mentioned that you. We're fishing. You had an hour long drive to get back to the city to have a job interview. And you just reeled something in. And if you had left right then, you could have made the job interview. And you turn and you go back to the river. And like you kind <laughs> of talk about like that that was more of a theme throughout the book of like you you know, you were uh uh you know, there was no other obligation that you were worried about.
1: Yeah, I and mean, certainly when I was um, you know, a young adult with you know, my only responsibility was to myself. The the part about career advancement was very very low on the scale of priorities if the fishing was good and and yeah. um, you know and I think that that uh, that the incident you're talking about in the book was actually like one of many. I was going to uh, say that similar... seems like it's <laughs> yeah.
0: happened before and since. So yeah, it, for sure. So in the book. Uh, you know, you 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 go to all sorts of places. You go to Russia. You go to uh, Japan, South America. You go all around the U.S. Um, how were you like? With that in mind, like, how were you funding these trips? Like, what what was that in between process between these trips looking like?
1: By hook or by crook, <laughs> you know, um, it was um, a lot of it was. I I mean, a lot of that travel. Um, I, I mean, you know, honestly, like I paid for very little of it and, and because I had very little money,
0: yeah.
1: um, so it was a combination of, um, some of it was for travel writing, you know, like to write stories about these places, either from a specific, like a lodge or a fishing destination that would host me if I would write something about it, you know, so much for pure journalism, right? Yeah. Like, um, you know, some of it was through like tourism, uh, boards you know like like uh, uh, the tourism wing of a government would pay for for writers to come and write about their country or their region so some of it was like that wow uh, and then others um, was really the good fortune uh, you know you can't spend a lot of time in the fly fishing world uh, especially when you're a working guide without coming into contact with people that have way more money than you. Um, and so uh, a lot of it was also, was basically out of the kindness of others that would say, Hey, why don't you come along? I, you know, I'll pick up the tab or, or something like that. So it was kind of a, and then, then there was also work. So some of the travel, when I started writing and, um, creative direction for some of the fly fishing, like tackle manufacturing companies, then it would be an assignment to go write about or photograph or whatever, some specific fishery to be featured in there. In their media so that was part of it too so some of gotcha. it was professional
0: okay and that makes a lot of sense how are you finding those tourism
1: opportunities that seems like a really interesting thing i've never thought of um i don't know if they do it anymore but it used to be like the british for example a british columbia tourism agency or whatever it was would would put on dinners in the lower 40 in the you know in the united states for travel writers mm-hmm. um and they would not really pitch ideas but they would kind of invite you to a dinner and then there'd be representatives there to talk about you know what you're interested in and what you might want to write about and and then they would set up things like that um i don't know if they still do that or not but that was um that was kind of a regular thing like maybe in the 90s that 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 happened um,
0: wow yeah that must've been a really good find and yeah so a lot of times whether it was a result of weather or or Things out of your control, uh, you'd come up skunked, right? You wouldn't. You, there's a lot of stories where you're not where you're just in it for the love of the game. Uh, what what skills are required of a good fly fisherman? If I were to to, to embark on this journey,
1: well, I'll, so that's sort of two parts. And the the first part the first part about about disastrous fishing trips is that you know good fishing trips make for lousy stories, right? Because you know, you don't want to read guy went here. Fishing was great. He caught a bunch of fish and he went home. That's true. Like that, like that's kind of boring travel writing, you know? And so, um, so part of it is that what you read about the disastrous things is that, that those are the more interesting trips. You know, those are like when, when crazy shit happens, um, mm-hmm. makes for a better story at the time. You might be bummed because you would rather be having a wonderful fishing trip with, you know, lots of fish every day, but, Um, but yeah, so that's sort of the rule of thumb of, of fishing writing is that, that, that like bad trips make for good stories. Um, so that's part of it. Why the book is so, is full of so many, um, (laughs) disastrous incidences. Um, and then as far as like what, what you need to be a good fisherman, um, you know, I think a lot of it is, is just being able to grind you know because there's going to be up times and bad times and good times and so you have to be able to i think be patient enough to grind through when things aren't right and and like you said there's so many things out of your control especially if you're traveling to fish it's different like my local fishery where i live here i only fish when the conditions are good right Mm -hmm. like like now i know what i'm looking for and when those things happen then i i go fishing you know but if you travel you got your six days or 10 days or five days that you randomly picked out of the calendar that ideally coincide with the peak of the fish run or good weather or whatever it is, but you know, it's still kind of a crapshoot. So I think you have to be able to, to be flexible. And then for satisfaction, I think, you know, what happens is if you fish for a long time, that gradually in a lot of ways the fish themselves become kind of secondary to the success of a trip in that it starts to become more about the people you're spending time with and uh, you know we're so rushed with everything these days that to have time with really good friends or family members a lot of times for me it's like an opportunity to have more extended time with my kids when we're not running to basketball practice and you know, all the stuff that happens when you're, when you're parent. So, um, so I think that, that a lot of the success for me comes around kind of the whole experience and that if you're catching a lot of fish, that's just sort of a bonus.
0: Yeah. And you have that in a lot of your chapters about, you know, you're not necessarily able to catch something or in one instance, you're not able to even fish, uh, fish. and your daughter, picks up a, a leaf uh, with a stick and, and, you know, you guys play fish that way. And it seems like that is the big thing of just uh, that that time with the people that you love that you mentioned. It's, it's so fleeting and it's so difficult to have. And it seems like that was part of what spawned your love to begin with about that time with your own dad.
1: Yeah. And the, the, that time, like what you just said, is is so, like, I just feel like it's increasingly – critical to our well-being because my day-to-day life is so hectic and between you know kid transportation and work issues and all the things that you know i mean just chores grocery shopping you know (laughs) keeping the bathroom relatively clean like you know those sort of things like it's really easy to i think to just be in this kind of blur of modern life and and i i read this thing a long time ago it always stuck with me that that when the scientists were first developing the idea of personal computers, like way back in the sixties, there was this belief that technology was going to create so much free time for everyone that, that we wouldn't know what to do with it all, that the United States was going to become this leisure class because you'd be so efficient with what you needed to do to make a living that all the rest of your time, like, what would we do with it all? And it turns out, (laughs) you know, that 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 it actually the opposite happened. And so like, because of that speed, to me, it feels like, like, like what started out as just an obsession to catch as many fish as possible has sort of become a refuge for me and my family, my friends as, as a time when you actually have sort of a shared common cause, you're all trying to do this thing and you're somewhere together. Um, and spending time, you know, long drives or boat drifts or, walk-ins, you know, you're hiking along and just kind of talking about stuff. And, and then on top of all that, you know, there's some sort of latent, I guess, like predator instinct when you're trying to catch a fish, um, that kind of heightens your senses around what the conditions, the environmental conditions around you are, you know, did it rain last night? How much is the river rising yeah. or falling? Um, you know, are you know, do the trees look healthy and all these other factors that feel like again get so lost in our kind of technological blitz you know the blitz of the everyday life that, that those things i think just become really valuable
0: hm that's such a good way of putting it and you are 100% right so i work in like digital marketing and it never ends and the whole joke is like like you were saying like i think the jetsons have a joke where Uh, George Jetson presses a button and he's tired and that's his job though. That's the whole thing he has to do. And that's where automation has taken him to like pressing a single button. Yeah. And that's his, that's his whole thing. And like, now we're just end to end beginning to the end of the day. We're jam packed with everything. You can never turn off and it is nuts.
1: Yeah. And now the buttons are multifunction. So you push one button for like 50 different outcomes. Right. right? Exactly. Like like, like it's, uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I feel like honestly, like there's so many different things um, like I was just complaining the other day about like communication platforms, right? So for my work, mm-hmm. I have, um, three different channels of teams. I have a work email. I have a personal email. I have two separate calendars. I have text messaging. I have Slack. I have, yeah like, yeah. yeah. I, I could spend my whole day just checking the different communication platforms to find out who's saying what. Yeah. And, you know it used to be you had to pick up the phone and dial the little rotary thing to talk to one person you know
0: yeah it, it is exhausting especially if your phone is connected to all of those
1: um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. notifications it's one constant long notification of things popping up on your screen and i i mean i'm certainly not an original thinker on this and you know i think everybody is faced with that but i i will say that as as you know it sounds cliche but those times when you are outside focused on trying to catch a fish or shoot a duck or whatever it is that you're doing or even just hiking yeah a lot of that goes away even and it's sort of like respite right like you you have just these little breaks and it feels like like those things are increasingly precious
0: yeah that's such a good way of putting it yeah I've, I read this I think it was a meme and I was like nowadays we're all, saying sorry for sorry for the delay in emails until the day we die we're just passing the same email back and forth <laughs> yeah. and that's what it is but i like the way you put it of like uh not only you know being in nature but that kind of primal side to it puts you yeah, more the, in tune that's such a good way of putting it i think that is pretty original
1: the awareness rises for sure yeah. around um you know and i i think probably goes back to caveman days or certainly like you know pre-bronze age days Mm. of of being a critter like you know we were predatory animals and you had to know where to find the berries or when the salmon were in the river or whatever and and be attuned to all the different environmental factors that are going on to make it successful because back then it wasn't recreation it was like survival right right. yeah and and so if you look at if it's if you know if you believe in in evolution then the, the people who survived and reproduced were the ones that were really good they had the instincts to be able to to notice those cues in nature around when to do certain things and we are the descendants of those people mm. now maybe we've kind of devolved over the last oh, of course uh, at least i have <laughs> 100 years cuz i don't know that those skills are that rewarded anymore um but but for most of human existence, that was the primary driver of, of being able to reproduce. And so I feel like even now, 150 years into sort of this technological manufacturing age, those those instincts are latent, but they're still there in us, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so a lot of it, I think, a fascination with fishing or hunting or foraging, um, you know, taps into some of that.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think you're right. Like uh, as a big hiker, I know that I get a different type of relaxation when I go, even if it's an exhausting trip, even if it's not a fun trip, like there's been a few trips where poor planning on my part, but like we've run out of water, um, <laughs> the, like okay. night, we were right next to a spring, but didn't know it until the next day or, uh, uh, you know, weather conditions, just like you're talking about with fishing and uh, still is a thousand times more relaxing than filtering an Excel spreadsheet or responding <laughs> yeah. to emails, uh, you know, e- even, even with you kicking yourself the entire trip, I, yeah, I would do it every day.
1: Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, that's, I, hopefully all the disastrous stories that are in the book that there, you know, that there's still the joy of yeah, it, for sure. Still, You know, and that, at the bottom you know at the bottom line or the end of the day or whatever it is that 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 to me is sort of the important thing is the the kind of restorative power of doing those things outside um but also you know part of the subtitle is the evolution and so part of what i wanted to do with the book was to trace if you're really obsessed with something if you have a real deep passion for something whether it's hiking or hunting or fishing or baseball or whatever it is that I think anybody that has that kind of passion or obsession, um, there's an arc in consciousness of how you think about that thing you're obsessed with, you know, and that's, to me, that's sort of, I think what the book is about is, is the changing of how you think about it, both from becoming merely a fish predator to becoming a conservationist, but also how you think about what is a successful trip? You know, is it with, is it the time with the people you love starts to become more important than how many fish you caught, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and I, 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 my, my theory is, is that everyone who feels really strongly about something has that evolving way of thinking about whatever the object of their, their passion is.
0: Hmm. I think you're probably right. So I don't know, uh, another Patagonia guy, but Rick Ridgeway. Uh, I spoke with him. uh, Yeah, about, you know, spoke with him on the podcast a couple months ago. And he said something very similar about hiking, you know, mountaineering, about how it started as the passion and then it became much more into conservation. And literally, I had jotted down that your book is very similar in that it started very, very passion focused, right? You're a young man, uh, obsession, right? You've got this obsession to go fishing. And then it becomes kind of um, more involved about, Okay, well, what's happening to our waterways, and and um, what's happening to these fish I love so much, and much more about conservation. Well, still have that obsession, but um, an evolution to your to your point and to your
1: word. Yeah, I think that's I think I think that's a pretty natural progression. I, th- I think it's really hard, especially today, to be any kind of outdoors person that has any level of interface with the natural world to not see that it's going down the tubes pretty fast. And and if it's something if some part of that is the thing that captivates you and that you love and that you're obsessed with, you know, the protection instinct I think is just natural that that you feel like, oh, I <laughs> you know, for me it was the closing of of my home river, mm-hmm. my fa- my favorite place to fish. That at some point there's a wake-up call that says, "Oh, I I need to do something so that this lasts into the future, you know, and then to compound it, if you, when you have children, then all of a sudden you're, you know, I mean, again, it's sort of a cliche, but I think that really gets you thinking about, or at least for me, it really made me think a lot more about what the future looks like will they have the same opportunities i had you know is there something we could do to make them at least stay the same and hopefully be better yeah seriously or is it inevitable that their experience will be a degraded version of my experience because my experience was very clearly diminished from what my parents generation experienced as far as the natural world right and to some extent it's inevitable because we have you know, whatever, 8 billion people or yeah. whatever the number is now that are living on the planet that, you know, 50 years ago, it was less than half that, or I can't remember what the statistics are, but basically the huge population, human population boom and all the technology we use to try and make it feasible inevitably degrades, you know, what's left of the natural world. So I think trying to hang on to some of that becomes pretty, pretty important to a lot of people that, that love it.
0: Yeah. And that's, you talk about having kids, like that's, we don't, my wife and I don't, but that's kind of one of the reasons I'm like debating it. Right. I'm just, I get nervous. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, and it just, it seems like, uh, yeah, it seems like a reason I I don't want to even have to think about that of like, what would I, how would things be in in 50 years? But it is a thought. Yeah. Right.
1: And and it's not even just the natural world. It's everything, you know, you, you just wonder what, you know, with what's happening with the political scene and all the things that are going on in this country and around the world that, um, you know, it is worrisome about if you're trying to decide to have kids or if you already have kids, um, I'm committed. My kids are already here. Like I, I gotta, you know, there's no, can't put them back now. So, um, you know, and I, I think like just to that point, one of the things that really shook me up was, um, you know, several years ago, I was talking to my daughter and, um, I think it was when she was just starting high school and I was asking her how things were going or whatever. And, and it somehow came out where she said, she told me, um, she said, dad, the first thing I do when I walk into any new classroom is I look for places to hide and exit. And I was thinking like, Oh, we never did that when yeah. i was a kid like like what has happened to us as a country and as a people that that's the first thing a kid has to think about yeah. in a place that's supposed to be safe you know yeah. and so and i don't i don't want to dig too deeply into the politics around that but the fact that 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 is a fact of modern childhood um you know i i consider incredibly tragic like that that just is is really a frightening thing and and so the same thing, I think, or similar things happen to the natural spaces and and the wild that's left. And and it's sort of, I don't know. I, I call myself a reluctant conservationist because I'd rather just be out there fishing. Hell but yeah, it,
0: yeah. You know, I get it. It's yeah. It's like I wish this. That's what. Again, not to get too political, but when people are talking about global warming and it doesn't exist, it's like I wish I wish I could believe that. I wish I could believe that it does not exist, or I wish I wouldn't care uh, about conservation. I don't want to be one; it's exhausting and it just it's depressing.
1: It really is. So, I 100% get it. You know, I think I think probably one of the goals of your podcast as a environmental and conservation minded host is you know to be able to make it hopeful. Um, but the, the day-to-day work in conservation can be tremendously discouraging, you know, and I think that when you look at the, you know, at the big picture, I, I wonder this, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is that there's a lot of us that work in conservation in very specific sort of niche areas. Right. So like, um, like I would argue that, that the most effective conservation comes from personal interests, right? Like, like, so I'm not, Interested in conservation just as a whole, mm-hmm. like as an abstract thing. I, I, I'm not campaigning for the black-footed ferret or the snail darter, or right, right. You know, like to me, I work in fish conservation and and river and water conservation because it's self-serving, right? Like I want those things for myself, um, which is probably not the greatest reflection on on me. If you're, <laughs> you know, if if you want to be altruistic this is the opposite of altruism because it, what I'm doing is something that's totally self-serving, but, but what I've been thinking about lately is like, is all this sort of specific issue conservation, does it become less important with the overall climate crisis? That's going to impact all of these little niches that we're occupying in conservation. Like, you know, I mean, you can do everything you can to save salmon in your home river, but if the water's 85 degrees in the summertime, they're not going to survive anyway. Um, You know, and so, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of the niche conservation versus, or do we all just pool our resources and fight the climate crisis? Because that's the biggie.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've thought about this too. And the other thing I'd put with climate is what you mentioned at first of just overall human uh, uh, population size. I think there could be, and I don't know, but I mean, you, you know, there could be a potential that we could somehow innovate our way out of climate issues, or, or, or to a better place with the climate. Uh, there are definitely some a lot smarter people than me working on that, and and whether it's with uh, sequestering it from the atmosphere itself, or just, uh, uh you know, uh, bioengineering food for cattle, so there it's the methane um, output isn't as big. But yeah, I mean, there are those it's either death by a thousand cuts or it's something big and unstoppable of climate change, of human um, size and honestly, like consumption and greed. And and um, yeah, I, I think it's the larger issues, but I think the biggest I think it's two things. The larger issues are probably going to get us. Faster, But I think what we're <laughs> going to see the biggest changes is going to be the the backyard conservationists, the people who are passionate about a certain thing like you uh, and, and work to to stop that. Because otherwise, um, not everyone can work on climate change. Not everyone's got those ability to. But, you know, at the same time, like if you're not interested in, you know, uh, fish conservation or you're not interested in, I don't know, West African lowland gorillas, then you're not going to work to conserve those. It's better for people who are in that area or for who are who are, are interested in that. So I don't know. I think we'll see more changes if you know, if we focus on what we, we are interested in or what really impacts us. But yeah, those those bigger ones are, are the ones that are gonna get us <laughs> fast but, and if I not think indefinitely.
1: Like, you know, with, with salmon, steelhead and trout conservation. The argument is always, I think, has morphed into sort of adjacency to climate crisis in that we know that that salmon, excuse me, salmon evolved to be able to deal with natural disaster. You know, that there's always been, you know, they occupy the Pacific ring of fire, right? So there's been earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis that have wiped out whole regions and the fish are designed to be able to repopulate them naturally and to be able to uh, survive these kind of natural disasters. And so there's some thought, I think that by, by focusing on diverse life histories of salmon populations, natural diversity of g- the gene pool that you're building resiliency in the face of sort of the inevitable warming of the planet. And so, I mean, I think I take a little bit of solace from that, Hmm. of thinking that, okay, like whatever we're doing to protect salmon now is also going to be helpful for those fish in the face of, you know, pretty radical weather changes that are coming.
0: Yeah. And that kind of brings me to, well, it feels like, One of the biggest things in the book is talking about, obviously talking about steelhead, but talking about salmon, but talking about steelhead is an indicator species. And you've seen it change throughout the course of your writing of the book, you know, the the decades of fishing. How has population and health of fish, uh, particular of steelhead, changed? And how have you, what have you associated that with?
1: Well, I mean, coastwide all the way, you know, from Northern British Columbia to the Southern range of steelhead, um, you know, which if, if people listening don't know steelhead are one of the Pacific salmon, they're basically a rainbow trout that goes out and lives in the ocean and then gets big and comes back and spawns in it's in the stream where it was born. Um, so they're really, I mean, when we talk about salmon, steelhead are kind of included in that. Um, and the populations have are in a spiral. You know, I mean, the last two years, this year's a little bit better. We had a little better conditions. So, so there's a little bump in the runs of fish coming back this year. But last year and the year before were consecutively, you know, the lowest returns in recorded history of steelhead from the Skeena River in British Columbia to the Clearwater and the Snake in Washington to the Olympic Peninsula to the coast of Oregon and all the way down through the, the Sacramento and California, the, the runs have, 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 been very, very, like almost catastrophically low the last two years. Um, and that comes on top of sort of a decade or decades, you know, I guess if you looked at the long-term trend, it's been pretty much straight downward for a hundred years. Um, here in, in Puget Sound where I live, Um, the wild steelhead population is about 2% of the historical average. Um, So we've lost 98% of the runs of those fish here. Uh, You know, the wild Chinook salmon, big king salmon are um, similar. They're somewhere between, you know, 1% and 5% of the historical number. And those fish have gone from, you know, 75 years ago, the average Puget Sound Chinook salmon was 25 pounds. The average size of the individual fish now is about nine pounds. So not only are the numbers really low, the numbers are at, you know, two, three, 4% of what they were historically. The fish are also like a third the size they used to be. And so, and a lot of it, so I know it was a two part question. What do I attribute it to? you know, it's the death of a thousand cuts for sure. I think, you know, dams and hydropower have had a huge impact. I think, um, you know, suburban sprawl and development that, you know, like now when, when it rains, you have all this like brake dust from cars that's toxic, that washes into the streams off of the roads and, and that kills aquatic life. Um, you have you know, you have really high harvest. We harvest a lot of salmon out in the open ocean where we don't know their rivers of origin. And so we can be decimating, you know, depressed populations without even knowing it. Um, you know, there's a, a million things. And, but the one thing like that, I focus a lot in the book that we actually have control over is the modern hatchery program in that, that we felt like, as technological beings, you know, and I think part of it is sort of this Western ethic that we can just engineer our way out of anything. I mean, you even mentioned it that there may be an engineering solution to climate change, you yeah, know, and, hopeful. and I hope, and I hope there is, but people thought that, that, that hatcheries were the technological solution to loss of habitat, you know, so that while we industrialized the rivers, made them produce electricity and, and support riverfront homes and all that sort of thing. The fallback to all those extraction industries was always, well, we can rebuild it with the hatchery. So you can industrialize the river and then still have the benefits of salmon because we'll put them in with these hatcheries. And it turned out that, you know, counterintuitively, that the more of these hatchery fish we put out, the fewer of the whole fish population survives, that the genetics are so bad in these inbred hatchery fish that are raised, you know, without all the natural selection things that make them survivable in the wild, that those bad genetics get passed around and you degrade the whole population and eventually they stop coming back. And so, um, and that thing is, is not politically easy, but but financially and, and logistically easy, if we just stopped doing it, <laughs> you know, then the wild fish genetics would rebuild over time and that they would be stronger, more resilient, more diverse runs of salmon. Um, but our human psychology is that we can fix this. And so we keep doing this thing that's not working and, and spending billions of dollars per year to do it, which is crazy.
0: Yeah. When you mentioned how humans have in some way devolved, that was the first thing I thought of, of just like, um, just like fish when hatcheries are introduced in that area. Um, So on that note, I also, you also want to note that you are a producer for the film Artificial uh, that you did with Patagonia um, as well. And that was all about, well, very much of it was about, um, you know, hatcheries. You mentioned the four H's, uh, hydro harvest, habitat, and hatcheries. So to me, I always thought hatcheries were well-intentioned uh, people who, who didn't know what they were doing, um, or didn't know the the long-term extent of what they would be doing of developing these these hatcheries, right? That are just trying to replenish fish supplies. But it seems like, as always, there is definitely an amount of of greed and corruption involved in that. What what is like? How do you see the breakdown? Is it well-intentioned? Is it is greed? Is it an alchemy of both and And like how, um, I mean, uh, you know, going right for it, but like, how is the, what is the way out of, of Uh, of what we've gotten uh, ourselves into?
1: I've been trying to figure what the way out is for years. And it's such a political cluster that it's very, getting out of it is, is very difficult. It seems really easy. Like if we just stop wasting this money, the fish would be better off if we just got out of their way. Like. There's a mountain of peer-reviewed published science that shows that to be true. But the politics of it and the different user groups are so complex that it's very difficult to do that there. um, We have uh, the United States government and the state governments have treaties with sovereign tribal nations that basically say that they require those hatchery fish because we've destroyed the habitat for wild fish. know so that's a huge political issue and and um i am a hundred percent in support of of tribal sovereignty and tribal rights um i just wish the hatcheries weren't part of that equation you know um hatcheries also have for a hundred years allowed resource extraction and destruction of the rivers to continue because it's the fallback plan and so Um, you know, if you want to log off the mountainsides or build a mine or build a mall or do whatever it is, what allows you to do that without saying you're driving salmon to extinction is put in a hatchery, you know? And so the hatcheries in a lot of ways are the enablers of resource Hmm. extraction. Um, so that's a very big political thorny issue as well. And then you have direct fishing constituency, you know, recreational fishing industry, commercial fishing industry that are dependent on these hatcheries pushing out enough fish to allow harvest um at least for the time being and you know your first part of that question was is it well intentioned absolutely the people that develop the fish hatcheries the people that work at fish hatcheries now in a lot of ways are just like me they grew up loving fish Mm -hmm. and they went to uh you know, a big school of fisheries, like at the University of Washington, where they're taught that the jobs and employment around saving fish are in the hatcheries and that that's how we're going to save fish, you know, contrary to the overwhelming science that says otherwise. And, um, so it perpetuates to meet all those obligations around business and tribal rights and all that. And then also because our, our educational institutions need to be able to employ their graduates um that it it persists and so i think those people are very well intentioned i i think there's a lot of similarities between them and me and um but what we know is it costs taxpayers billions of dollars a year to support this hatchery complex we know that um, the presence of hatchery fish makes wild fish trend towards zero because of all the things I list in the book, but but we also know that in order to keep hatchery production going, the fish get so inbred that every few generations, they need to go get wild genetics and reintroduce it to these domesticated fish so that they can survive. But if the domesticated version drives the wild version to extinction, that necessarily means that the hatchery fish are doomed to extinction as well which means that we've basically spent billions of dollars a year to end up at extinction. Hmm. And so I think, you know, and there's plenty of, like I said, peer reviewed, widely accepted scientific method, conducted studies and papers that have been published that, that show this to be true. And you know, because of the business and political parts of this thing, we continue to spend the money and continue to drive fish to extinction. And it's, it's really frustrating because when you look at the places where hatcheries have been removed, the rebound of wild fish is often like staggering. Like it's amazing how quickly the fish will come back and how much more sustainable those runs are, but we just don't seem capable of the political will to do that, uh, as policy.
0: Yeah. That's the big thing about talking about conservation. And yeah, while it can be, um, sad and like, uh, demoralizing and, and frustrating, uh, you just got to lay off a little bit of the environment, a little bit, and it will rebound for the most part. Like I mean, I've talked yeah, about-
1: that's, that's the, you know, um, Bill McMillan, who's a friend of mine and fish biologist, um, Always says that you know salmon and steelhead trout are incredibly resilient. We just have to get out of their way. Yeah, and you know, in our psychology and our business obligations, are and our politics, and you know, you mentioned greed. And I don't know. I don't think hatchery people who are working in hatcheries are greedy, but I think the hatcheries themselves function to allow the greed from other industries. That that all those things kind of together make it very difficult. To do something that, on the face of it, would be really easy, like let's just stop spending the money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and 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 the fish will come back, and then they'll be self sustaining and purifying their genetics in a way that makes them more diverse and more able to survive climate change,
0: yeah, and i think i'm I think I was referring to like kind of what you mentioned of greed in the uh on the back end, right if like um you know, we can dam up this river, and as long as we put a hatchery in, it's almost like carbon credits—like just a way of buying yeah. back public trust, and just kind of a way of greenwashing what what maybe organizations are doing. Because I saw, yeah, in the, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I saw an artificial that it seemed like a theme that there was like a lot of power companies involved in hatcheries or involved in kind of uh, the population of them. Is that because of uh, the damming and then trying to replenish the supplies?
1: Yeah. So, you know, know, if you build a dam, you're cutting off some huge portion of the watershed that most of it is, you know, most of the salmon spawning and rearing of juveniles takes place, you know, in these tributaries and these upstream reaches. And so when you build a dam, it cuts that off. Um, And it submerges a huge amount of the natural river under a reservoir that, oftentimes has temperature or oxygen issues that is not, you know, conducive to salmon survival. Um, and so it's mitigation, right? These hatcheries, a huge percentage of them are actually called mitigation hatcheries and they're built to mitigate for the dams being built. Um, but it's the same thing. Like when you industrialize the estuaries and the bays, these rivers flow into for ports and, marinas and homes and all that sort of thing. You wipe out kind of critical juvenile salmon habitat. What where they, they're very, uh, um, susceptible during this time because they're adjusting to saltwater as they go out of the rivers. And when we damage the habitat there again, the solution has been, if we build a hatchery, there'll be so many more fish, it doesn't matter if a lot of them don't survive because we'll still get them back, you know, and, mm. and, uh, when the hatchery returns inevitably diminish because of inbreeding and domestication, so far, the answer has always been, let's just increase production. We'll put more, we'll do more of what's not working. And even when the returns get down to, you know, 0.002%, if we, if we increase the overall number, (laughs) you know, that that small percent will still be enough to let people fish or whatever it is that they want to do.
0: Huh? Yeah. Oh, so, and, and to be clear, we're talking about hatcheries, right? And hatcheries mm-hmm. are, they're different than fish farms.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Which
0: are almost worse, right? Fish farms, again, in artificial, there's a kind of a, a portion where a diver goes to, to investigate a fish farm that kind of imploded talk about the issues with fish farming versus hatcheries and kind of how they're different you know people might not know the exact difference and nuances between them but and the the issues they both come with
1: yeah for sure so the the hatcheries we're talking about um are on rivers and they were created to mitigate for damage to the to the river system itself right so if the environment's not functioning there we'll mitigate it or make up for it by Increasing the number of fish we're putting into the river yeah, by catching will go,
0: live salmon and then, yeah, harvesting the eggs and really kind of reproducing them, yeah, spawning
1: them. the yeah. eggs, raising the babies, you know, and it's very counter to natural selection yeah. because, you know, like I think, you know, if you have two wild salmon spawning and let's say the female has 5,000 eggs, you know, if two out of those 5,000, just the two most fit, most evolved fish survive to spawn. You're at replacement value, right? You have a steady, you have a steady population. If three come back, you know you have a fifty percent increase in population. Mm, Yeah. If 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 one comes back out of those five thousand, you've lost fifty percent of of replacement value. So the numbers we're talking about the winnowing down from five thousand eggs laid to two or three or four fish surviving means any flaw in the genetics those fish don't survive so the ones that come back are the fittest of the fit right in a hatchery almost a hundred percent of those eggs survive and reach the next level and again where you'd have another big winnowing down when they go from one inch to five inches you know you might have another 90 percent loss in the wild you have almost no loss and so you have that's how the genetics get messed up in in the hatchery fish so Now fish farms. So anyway, so those hatchery fish are put out for harvest and to mitigate for the loss of habitat. Good intentions, right? Like we're going to try and fix this problem by engineering our way out of it. Fish farms, on the other hand, are pure greed. Like they're not designed to help anything in the natural world. And, you know, there are ways of of using the natural environment for individual gain and profit. And so these corporations, um, build big net pens and go to a hatchery and buy or produce small fish and they mm. put them in the net pens and they feed them like crazy. They're essentially, their CAFOs, you know, they're feedlots yeah. for salmon. Um, but because they're underwater. People don't know that there's like thousands of tons of fecal matter covering the bottom underneath of the natural public waterways underneath these net pens. Um, And because they're so confined in these small areas, they have really bad problems with disease and parasites. And the only way to really fight that is to douse them with, uh, with chemicals and pharmaceuticals which then are flowing freely out again into the public water. Uh, And then they're frequently really infested with, with parasites, which then spread to wild fish that are swimming by them. Um, And this is purely for profit because the corporations that are paying to do this, then harvest them as adults and sell them at the grocery store. Um, So it has kind of, it's one of those classic cases of, of public loss for private gain, right? That, that, that all of us that use these waterways are suffering through loss of, of the ecosystem diversity, through loss of salmon runs, through loss of of anything that would be considered wild there, just so that the corporate entities can make massive profits on these on selling of the fish.
0: Yeah. So as bad as hatcheries are, like a broken fish farm, like what happens in the movie, is worse. Right. Because you, and, and even just a fish farm in general is, yeah, that's probably I mean, where the greed comes in.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really come to light is that at most of these fish farms, what they feed them is ground up wild bait fish that are then removed from the ecosystem so that the wild fish don't have enough food to eat <laughs> um, because we're harvesting them to feed in these feedlots to give them to these farm raised salmon. Um, so on almost every level, the concept of fish farming is kind of, uh, uh, is disastrous really on every level.
0: And so the question is, I'm wondering if like talking about population increases and just demand, right? Like people, people want things when they want it. They want salmon when they want it. And they're probably not ready. They're probably not necessarily willing to wait for seasons. Right. So I'm, I'm curious if like, do you think natural processes get rid of the fish farms entirely? Get rid of the uh, hatcheries entirely? Would would that be able to sustain people's desire? We'll say desire for salmon. Do you think no. that you don't think so? No.
1: no, because I mean, our population growth has been such that you know the demands on salmon themselves are so much higher now than they were before. But so I don't think there would be. I don't think we'd be in a position for indiscriminate harvest. Right. Cause we, mm. we know for a fact that with any, you know, if there were no regulations on any resource extraction, the corporations would extract it until there was nothing left. Right. Like whether it's trees or oil or whatever it is, like we're going to go to squeeze every bit out of it. So right. I don't think it would lead to, um, to like unfettered access to harvesting salmon. What I think it would lead to is uh, healthy, self-sustaining runs that would allow probably more harvest than is allowed now, Um, but it would still need to be, it would still need to be tightly controlled. Um, But I think we'd probably be able to harvest more uh, in a lot of the watersheds. And, And the results of hatchery removal and fish farm removal Would really vary across the spectrum because there's places where it's gotten much worse you know there's way more so like in a river where there's been a lot of hatchery genetics mixed in with the wild fish it takes a lot longer for the wild generations to get rid of those bad genetics right in rivers where there's very little intermixing of the hatchery and wild fish the recovery would happen much faster you know and it's pretty stark like there's We've been very bad about canceling hatchery programs, but in the places that we've done it, the re- results have been just remarkable. You know that that like um, I talked about it in the book, but like the Eel River in Northern California. You know there was a, there was a series of big floods like in the late I guess I'm thinking like in the in the late '60s, or maybe it was the late '50s. Anyway, so the people there in the state of California thought that we need to help this river recover. So we're going to build a hatchery. And the year they built the hatchery and started to operate it, the wild run of steelhead on that river was, I think it was about 80,000 fish. So they built the hatchery to try and make that run even bigger. Mm-hmm. And over 20 years operating that hatchery, so I think it started in 74, so that'd be 84. So in 1994, they wanted an assessment of what has the hatchery done for us. The total combined run of hatchery-origin fish and wild fish was 2,000. So at the cost of millions of dollars to build and operate this hatchery, what they did is they took the run from 80,000 to 2,000 fish. And we spent, you know, tens of millions of dollars to accomplish that. So when that came to light, I think that was 94, they said, oh, this is bad. We'll cancel the hatchery. It's one of the few places where that's happened. But hmm. they So they closed the hatchery and stopped releasing hatchery fish. And then from 94 to 2014, the river just kind of existed on its own with no hatchery supplementation. And in 2014, the the returns of those fish was... Somewhere between thirty and fifty thousand fish.
0: Probably healthier than the two thousand too.
1: Yeah. So by just not spending that money, Mm -hmm. that publicly funded taxpayer fishing license money, you know, we we recovered about half of what was there originally.
0: Um, I'm I'm sorry.
1: No, go ahead. Who who did, who
0: conducted that investigation? Was it the hatchery itself? Was it the the surrounding area? I think it was Was the the state.
1: No, I think it was the state realizing that this thing wasn't working because when you go from 80,000 fish to 2000 fish, people notice, you know, the, the, the people living there, whether they were tribal people or recreational fishermen or whatever, were like, Hey, it's getting worse every year. And so I think they were forced to, to close that, but, but that same decline is happening wherever there are hatcheries
0: yeah so it's interesting i can't see the pattern at those hatcheries as well i mean i'm sure like we mentioned death by a thousand cuts right there's other things that are impacting it but it seems like the biggest h is hatchery that would
1: be the well i don't know if it's even the biggest h but it's the easiest to fix
0: yeah okay yeah yeah and that's that's what i love about uh well that's what i love about the book again you know hopeful and this the podcast i'm doing you know we're trying to make it as hopeful as possible um but you do mention, like you know, dams are getting torn down, right? You even talk about like Mount St. Helens and about how the rebound. I mean, that's natural, but how the rebound happened after that? Are you are you hopeful? Are you hopeful that that things can turn around?
1: Um, <laughs> just to keep this on the lighter side. No, uh, no, I mean just yeah. However you feel. No, I, I I go back and forth. I mean, I think the the current political situation around hatcheries and dam removal like everything is such a struggle i don't know if we're gonna win those battles fast enough to 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 save what's going downhill really rapidly um but but there is hope and where i see the hope is really a different place and and to me the hope is in the next generation of voters that are kids now that are coming into voting age in that um These are kids that are really angry with what their parents and grandparents did to manage the resources that they need to have a good life. And so I think whether you're talking about fish conservation, whether you're talking about public lands access, whether you're talking about, I mean, everything, gun control, reproductive rights, all these sort of things. Um, You know, these are kids that are really upset and angry that we didn't do what it take, what it took to slow down climate change. We didn't do anything to slow down climate change. We just let it happen and they're going to have to live with the repercussions. You know, we're the ones that let the country devolve to the point where where high school kids have to check out their classrooms by looking for places to hide where, you know, I mean, all these things. I think there's a cohort of voters, of soon to be voters that are so angry with the current political situation and and their parents sort of stewardship or lack of stewardship um, that I, I have a lot of hope that the next groups of voters that are coming of age in the, over the next 10, 20, 30 years are, are gonna have to make some really big changes to, to bail out the problems that we created. Um, and when I talk to my kids' friends and my kids, and, you know, I live in kind of a, a liberal bubble here, so it, it may not be <laughs> indicative of the whole the whole country, but I just, I feel like there's this really angry, motivated, um, um, conservation-minded group of soon-to-be voting public that, that are coming of age now, and and I have a lot of hope for that. Like, I, I mean, I look at my kids are way more, they've had to become more aware of all these political things that I never thought about as a kid. Yeah. You know, I never thought about conservation as a kid. And these are kids that have grown up watching rivers. They like to fish shut down because there aren't enough fish. They've watched, you know, kids getting killed in schools. They've watched all this stuff that's going on. And You know, my guess is that as soon as they have a chance to vote, they're going to force some real change.
0: I think you're right. And I hope you're right. Uh, Again, I'm saying artificial because it's top of mind. But you interviewed and you spoke with a lot of really intelligent people, uh, yourself included. But one of the smartest people in that was Autumn, uh, a grade school student, talking about the issues with hatchery fishing. And I had to pause and rewind. It was so powerful about how she was able to explain like you know I think this is as good as this system is but this system itself is not good and kind of explains how uh her really really in-depth and and granular and nuanced thought on hatcheries
1: yeah I think she says something about like we should just let them do their thing or something like that and what she's talking about wild salmon she's like we should just let them do their thing and not interfere and and I think you know, we didn't plan that interview. She was just with the group of kids that was coming out to do this field trip, you know, and and I think there's a lot of kids like that. I think, I mean, even like this Greta Thunberg, you know, that is leading a lot of the climate issue stuff and has become kind of this iconic symbol of that. I, I hope, I think, and I hope that this is really indicative of of how the politics of America will change over the next 10 and 20 years. And, you know, and if it doesn't change, we're pretty much doomed. So, yeah. so like, um, you know, I mean, I, I really feel like, like that's where the hope lies. And, and when you spend time with these kids that are, you know, teenagers now or preteens now, and you talk to them about these things, um, it's really uplifting. Like, like a part of it, I feel guilty because they look at us and go, why didn't you make things better for us? You yeah. know, and that's, that's kind of heartbreaking. All I can say is that some of us tried and it wasn't enough. So now it's on you, but I think these kids are pretty, pretty motivated. And so I like, that's, that's where the bright spot is. I I'm not real hopeful that anything I'm doing is going to fix the problem. Um, I know that feeling, (laughs) you know, but, but I am hopeful that, that this next cohort of voters is going to change how we look at at everything and, and make this truly like everybody says, you know, let's make this a better place for the future or let, you know, make it a better world for humankind or whatever. And and we've done a pretty piss poor job of that, you know, over the last several generations. And, you know, and I think finally, maybe we're at that breaking point where the next generation is going to be motivated enough to do it.
0: Well, one thing, as you were talking, one thing I thought of was a quote, from the book, I think you quoted someone from uh, National Geographic. when you, It goes, a curious thing happens when fish stocks decline. People who aren't aware of the old levels accept the new ones as normal. over generations, so- societies adjust their expectations downward to match prevailing conditions. So what I think you're doing, and hopefully what I'm trying to do, is to tell those stories about... That this is not how it's always been and this is not the way it needs to be. And I think those messages of hope of, you know, uh, uh, you know, talking about dams being torn down or talking about the before and after of hatcheries or just documenting it is incredibly important to give people that perspective of how things have been and how they can be again. So
1: I hope so. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of times that's sort of the best I can do, <laughs> hey, <laughs> you know. It's great. And and. And that, that quote is really, I mean, it's very fish specific in that context, but it's really about shifting baselines, right? That, that we just keep adjusting to the new normal, even though the new normal is getting gradually worse and worse. Yeah. And so, yeah, some reminders of that, I think, you know, taking a kid hiking or taking a kid fishing so that they can see really beautiful places and really, really good natural ecosystems and see what it should be like. Um, you know, I, I was, it was really uplifting, uh, the kid, my kids and I spent some time in Alaska this summer and could see what lack of human impact or relatively little yeah. human impact compared to here, <clears throat> what that means to what's the ecosystem like, you know, holy smokes, there's brown bears walking right around us. There's yeah. so many salmon in the river. You couldn't walk across it without stepping on fish. There's, you know, this, I mean, we have really shifted our baselines away from what the natural abundance of things are or were. And, and so, you know, obviously that's a very privileged position to be able to travel to Alaska and do that. But I think that that it is important that we need to somehow convey that we're already a long way off from what natural abundance looks like and that that if we don't do things, it's going to get worse.
0: And how long? How long do you think we have? How long do you think we have oh. to get your uh, steelhead populations up to save these rivers? How long do you think?
1: A lot of these rivers, if we canceled the hatchery program today, within twenty years, we've had we would have amazing runs of fish in them. Wow. I mean, you know, like I think we could. I think in twenty years, you would see remarkable rebounds of of wild salmon and steelhead. Um, if that doesn't happen. You know it really varies from watershed to watershed but there's you know like so chambers creek is a stream in in puget sound that was the original stock of almost all the winter steelhead hatchery programs and those fish have been domesticated for dozens and dozens and dozens of years and so now they're these very kind of bad genetically mutated fish that are not very they're not very well adapted to survive in the wild. And, but that's the fit. That's the, the stock, the lineage that's used in most of the winter steelhead hatcheries, um, in the United States, uh, West coast, the original run of wild chambers, Creek steelhead is extinct. Hmm. Like it's gone, doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so that's the risk. Like that's, that's what you're looking at if we don't change our ways pretty soon. Um, and how fast that can happen in chambers creek it happened years ago already uh in other rivers we're sort of in different different percentages of being there but um you know there's a lot of salmon and steelhead populations that are functionally extinct on the west coast now um and like i said you know you look at these places like puget sound where we're at two percent of historical numbers of fish and it's debatable whether there's a big enough gene pool out of 2% to be able to reproduce and repopulate without inbreeding problems. I, I don't really know. Um, I think they're hanging on by a thread right now, but that it's really important that, you know, the critical time is really is going to be now in the next 10 years to make some pretty radical changes.
0: Well, Dylan, thank you so much. I I, I think we can do it. And I think the efforts... Uh, of documenting this, of telling the story, um, both in your book, Headwaters and Artificial. And I know you've written a lot of other books as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Well, that was,
1: yeah, great conversation, Brian. I know it gets kind of heavy and, you know, the, (laughs) the intent is not, not to like, you know, bum people out. I think the intent is to just say like, Hey, let's, let's come together and, and do something. Cause you know, time is not, in It's not infinite. Like the, the opportunity to fix things just like it is with climate change, you know, that they're saying now, like we got to do something major in five years or we're not going to hit our target. You know, we're at that, we're at a crisis point with Pacific salmon and the crisis point on Atlantic salmon, at least in North America is past. Like, you know, those fish in, at least in the Eastern seaboard of the United States, they're gone. Like there used to be insane numbers of wild Atlantic salmon all over the East coast of of the United States and and they're extinct, like they're gone and we're not that far off from that on the Pacific coast. And so um, I think it's only a factor of, of westward expansion taking a hundred years that we haven't wiped them out here yet, but technology has increased to the point where we're wiping them out at a faster rate on the West coast now. And so, yeah, the time's here now. And, you know, I hope people that are listening are, um, you know, are are ready to roll up their sleeves and hopefully, you know, there's some easy things to do. I think, you know, supporting the groups that are doing the hard work, like Wild Fish Conservancy, Native Fish Society, um, Wild Steelhead Coalition, you know, if you don't have time to volunteer, you can write a check and and they're doing really good work, Um, you know, and I, I think there are groups out there, Skeena Wild in British Columbia is doing some great stuff, Watershed Watch in British Columbia is doing some great work. Um, you know, there's a whole host of these sort of small, smaller uh, NGOs that are, are becoming much more effective hmm. and uh, working with the politicians, bringing litigation, doing whatever's required. Um, you know, and the other uplifting piece of this is, you know, as I think in our lifetimes, we'll see the Snake River dams come out. I think we're really close to seeing the Klamath River dams come out, you know, in 2018. Yeah, 2000- yeah. You know, in 2011, we saw the Elwa dams come out, um, you know, so I think there's, there's progress being made, but, but there's, there's, you know, the majority of the work is still to be done.
0: Yeah. I, I know we're at, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you had an obligation, but uh, yeah, I was very curious about the Klamath dams because I know that that was, um, you know, has been a cliffhanger
1: lately, but. Well, yeah, no, I the Klamath dams i think they're going to happen like I, wow. I mean it's been a it's been a really long long process with you know who knows how many hours of people working on this um you know and like the Elwha dam effort like that was 30 years it took 30 years to get those dams out you know so none of this happens fast um you know i on that note i would really recommend i don't know if you've seen it but damnation um, I've heard of which no, is, man, it's another film that Patagonia made um, that was um, directed and produced by uh, by Travis Rummel and Ben Knight, who are tremendous filmmakers. It's a great film. It's, it's fun. It's entertaining. And it's really uplifting around dam removal. Hmm. Um, and and so, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the Elwha took 30 years, I think the Klamath is going to happen relatively soon and i i believe that that we'll actually see the four lower snake river dams come out in our lifetime um i'm hoping and so you know those are those are certainly bright spots and 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 there's been dam removals all over the united states you know on the east coast and um in oregon and washington so so those are things that we can feel good about they're not enough yet but we you know it's good to mark some some wins
0: yeah, and hopefully those are lessons learned, right? Hopefully we're not going to go back and then redam those those rivers in like, <laughs> fifty years. Who knows? But I mean, you know, hopefully those are those are in the win category, and 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 hatcheries would soon to be following, fish farms would soon to follow.
1: I hope so. I hope so. And I, you know, I really appreciate this time. This is a really good conversation. I think it's important and I'm, I'm really happy for your podcast. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the extra time. I love the book. I really love the, uh, the movie as well. I'm going to watch damnation and I'm also going to put those organizations in the show notes. So thank you for sharing that.
1: All right. Well, Um, thanks so much, Brian. Take care.
0: Yeah. Have a good one, Dylan. Appreciate your time. Thanks for joining. If you like that episode. Feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget yourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.